welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the program. I uh, look forward to uh, having you listen every Sunday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at richarddugan.com. We also have podcasts that are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, as well as many other locations, and on the homepage of richarddugan.com, as well as the uh, radio shows page. And um, we are going to give you our guest's website in a moment so that you can continue your evolutionary process and move forward in this life to make your life better, make the life of the people around you better, your community, your state, your nation, and hopefully the world as well. And uh, also, if you'd like to support us in what we're doing, we would gratefully appreciate and take uh, any financial support you send us. We have a PayPal and Patreon account for your security as well as ours. And uh, so uh, you can go there to the homepage of richarddugan.com. Just scroll down. You'll find the links. They're not far down. Or you can go to the missions page if maybe this is the first time you've listened to, to Tell Me Your Story. So please uh, do what you can. If you can, we'll take energetic support as well. So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you to those who have helped. And those who will support us down the road, we are greatly appreciative of, of any support that you can give us. We'll take energetic support as well. Well, today I was going to start the program out with a wonderful little ditty, a little song that kind of fit the theme for what we're going to be talking about today. Little Julie Andrews. I can't remember if it was from uh, uh, Sound of Music or if it was from Mary Poppins. Uh, but it kind of goes along with the title of uh, uh, my guest's book today. Uh, my guest is going is the author of a book entitled A Spoonful of Courage for the Sick and Suffering, Transforming Your Greatest Challenges into Your Biggest Blessings. Charles W. Page, M.D., Dr. Page, is my guest here on the program today. And, and uh, Charles, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Good to be here, Richard. Good to be here. We have had a very interesting uh, and challenging beginning to uh, this process, you and I, uh, which is rather interesting because uh, there was a, an instant, just an instant, when I basically cried uncle and said, ah, you know what, let's try this on another day. I want to jump into that because you are a doctor. Uh, you've been a physician for how long and in what particular field? So I'm a general surgeon. I've been practicing for about 25 years. I'm 52. I can't believe I've been doing this uh, for this long. So I serve in an underserved community in rural Texas. So I do a lot of things. I wear a lot of hats and uh, do a lot of trauma, do cancer surgery, do a lot of laparoscopic stuff. I mean, you name it, I, I pretty much do it. And... Uh... So, so some might say, well, you're a regular cut up as it were, but <laughs> yes. I resemble but that statement, Richard. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, I guess I want to get real serious here for just a moment and ask you about the medical, uh, medical profession. As you see it, you were talking to me about this, uh, when to say when philosophy, uh, that doesn't seem to exist. I sometimes refer to it as crying uncle, you know, stop. I mean, a DNR is one thing, you know, that's, that's something that has to be uh, adhered yep. to by law uh, yep. if someone does a, a, a do not resuscitate. Um, but what if they are conscious? What if they are um, fully aware of what's going on and they say enough is enough. Leave me alone. I don't want anymore. I don't care if you think 
that uh, this is just too much. I mean, my wife who went through cancer back in 2001, she was diagnosed in July, went to the surgery, went through the wow. chemo, which I wouldn't wish on my worst, uh, my, my worst enemy. And thank God ever since she's been free and clear of it. And even though she still has uh, very real concerns as far as is it really gone or is it going to come back? And then she'll have this one sensation and so on and so forth. And so I, I just, I really, I, I genuinely ask this question seriously because I hope I never, ever have to face something like that. But there's a part of me that just feels like quality of life is just too doggone important to, 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 to uh, um, sacrifice it for quantity of life. Your thoughts? Cool. Well, correct. So, so that is, is a lot to unpack that question. Let me say the doctor-patient relationship is key in this. And really, that's what's, that's what's kind of beginning to be missing, I think, in the new uh, technologically-based medicine that we have. You know, the doctors of, of old, they really knew their patients. They knew the families. They had conversations with people. And so when these kind of issues came up, they had a whole context and wish to make these decisions. And that's why, you know, for listeners, it's important for you to have these conversations with your spouse and your family before they ever happen. So, but, but really, I think uh, one of the things I've learned over the past 25 years is just learning to listen to the patients. You know, a lot of times the patients will tell us if they want to carry on or not. And, and I was just sharing, you know, I was called in to see this 88-year-old lady. They called me to put a feeding tube in her. She had had con con contracted coronavirus in the nursing home, and she couldn't swallow. Well, as I began to talk to the family, even before I saw the patient, I learned that she had been suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's a progressive muscular disease. And, and she'd been battling this for 40 years. This lady was a fighter, you know. And so the family kind of shared with me, said, Doc, you know, we've We've talked with mom about this and you're going to have to ask her, you know, the weird thing now about the coronavirus is that families can't come into the hospital. They're actually, the patients are quarantined and I have to have a lot of these conversations either on the phone or in the parking lot. So I went in to talk to this 80 year old lady, 88 year old lady, you know, all shriveled up with her Lou Gehrig's disease. And, you know, when I began to ask her, I said, you know, Miss Eunice, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to put in the feeding tube and, fight the coronavirus and fight the Lou Gehrig's disease. And she looked at me and she says, doctor, I'm done. I want to go to heaven. Let me go. No feeding tube, you know? And so it, that was a very easy decision. You know, one of the things about the coronavirus now is that we're, we're put in these situations, especially critical care doctors, where they have to make a decision, um, you know, um, you know, a person is probably not going to get better you know, where do you draw the line? And, I, I, you know, I don't think we make any protocols or any, you know, hard, fast decisions. I mean, every case is unique. But I think that's where communication comes in with doctors and uh, and families and, you know, and really kind of having that conversation with your loved one before you ever get into that situation. I think that's really, really important so that you know what mom would want to do in this situation or what your spouse would want to do. How many coronavirus patients have you seen as of our conversation here, roughly? Probably about 30, 
So, you know, it's funny, we're in rural Texas and in our specific county, because we're an underserved county, we have a lot of sick people. So I've seen a, a good proportion of people. You know, as a surgeon, you know, a lot of my interaction is indirectly. I mean, I'm not, you know, making ventilator orders on patients with coronavirus. But yeah, I've seen about 30. I've done surgery on patients with coronavirus. Wow. And um, maybe to get some of the logistics and and, uh, other aspects out of the way, PPE uh, materials you have sufficient or are you folks coming up short, even though you've only seen 30 patients, it is a rural area and all of that, but still, what's, what's your status in that regard? It depends. I mean, it really depends. We have two hospitals. One is a corporate hospital who has a lot more supplies in our county hospital, and they don't seem to really have a lot of problems with resources. Uh, the county hospital is having a lot of problems. You know, when I walk through what I call Coronaville, the quarantined area, you know, I see, um, you know, gowns from the last shift. You know, we walk in the doors and we don't have our, you know, we don't have masks, so we have to wear our own masks. So there's a lot of issues, and it depends. It's you know, depends, uh, you know, as far as where you're at. But yeah, we're still having some resource issues, especially, especially where I'm at. One of the other aspects of this whole situation, and even if it wasn't this, it would be something else, is uh, the fixation that many people have, rightly or wrongly, uh, and I'm doing my best not to pass judgment on this, is it seems as though people are more concerned uh, with uh, restarting the economy than they are promoting the general welfare. In our Declaration of Independence and Preamble to the Constitution, it talks about these aspects of what this document, the Constitution, is supposed to help us to achieve. And uh, uh, certainly, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's wonderful. Individual rights, that's fantastic. But it also talks about promoting the general welfare as well as preserving the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, our posterity, our future generations. If we, it it has been said uh, that we know very little about this virus. We're learning more each day, but still we don't know enough about it. And we have no way of knowing if we're going to have a huge rebound in the summer or in the fall. Uh, we have no idea, no way of knowing if those people who uh, test uh, negative or let's say who test positive, who go through it, who survive, who have the antibodies, won't, it won't pop up again. Uh, I mean, we just, there's so much we don't know about this. And it, it, there's almost this, this sense of sacrificing human life in, in exchange for, or um, uh, for the economy for money, for the almighty dollar. And I, I'm curious, I realize this is a little out of your purview, but I'm just curious, you're a citizen of the United States of America. You know, you're a Texan. I mean, and I, I have a, a little understanding of the, the Texas mentality. You know, you guys are very headstrong. You know, you don't put up with anything from anybody, you know, but at the same time, you give a damn about your community. And, and I have struggled with this question. I think like most Americans have, I oscillate between two different opinions. Um, you, you know, we have to base um, our decisions on facts. And really early on, I believe our government didn't have a lot of information. As this has evolved, I think we've learned more about the virus and we learned more about who is susceptible. You know, and it's really people who have comorbidities. It's not necessarily 
an age thing. In fact, I believe we had a 40-year-old person die here recently who had a lot of medical problems. So it's not necessarily just an age thing. Um, but I think we're learning more about who is getting the virus. We're learning more about, you know, all, all sorts of things about the virus, about medications and treatments and stuff. And so, um, you know, I think it's a different game than it was, say, you know, uh, early March when all this started. I mean, I think we're, we're beginning to know more. Um, I think it's a delicate balance. I mean, I, I really believe our government did what was in the best interest of the people. Talk about the general welfare of the Constitution. I mean, you know, I think there are some things that they had to do. The, the challenge here is that these are uncharted waters and it's hard to know exactly, you know, mm -hmm. you know how to navigate through this, uh, you know. And so I think they've done, you know, a reasonably good, good job with this. Has it been perfect? No, it hasn't been perfect. You know, I, well, I will, think it. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I will say this uh, this much for uh, the governmental bodies uh, throughout the country, as well as the federal government. As a kid growing up, and I've been promoting this for over 40 years. OK, I'm sick. I'll be 60 in June. I've been promoting this whenever the influenza hits in the spring or the winter, whenever it hits, shut the airlines down shut down travel for two weeks, no more than two weeks. Now that's a small hit to the economy, a small hit compared to what we're doing now. And had they done that back in January, shut down the airlines from both coasts. They say that the reason why the United States was hit so hard was they shut down travel from Asia and, and, and the Pacific Rim uh, to the United States, but they didn't shut it down from Europe and people were coming in from Europe with the COVID virus. But um, I've been promoting that for, for over 40 years, and, and for the first time in my lifetime, they finally did that. They did something different. You've heard Einstein's uh, phrase that if you continue to do the same thing over and over again, <laughs> expecting a different result, that's yep. the definition of insanity. Well, finally, we pulled our heads out and said, you know what? Maybe we should shut things down for a little while. And they did think maybe two, three weeks at the most, that kind of thing. Certainly, it's been going on for at least two months as of our conversation. Uh, but you're, you're still working. You're still cranking away. Even though you're in a rural area, you still have patients other than coronavirus patients. How is, how is your presence to those patients who are non-coronavirus patients? Maybe they've got arthritis. Maybe they've got asthma. Maybe they've broken leg, what have you. And you have been around these people who uh, could potentially infect you. Yeah. So, you know, and so, I, you know, I've been, you know, I do a lot of breast cancer patients and I've had to do breast cancer, you know, for a time, for a time we held off their operations, you know, for a good month mm -hmm. until we felt like it was safe. You know, initially that, 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 that philosophy, that strategy was to flatten the curve, was to diminish the number the rate of transmission of the disease so that we would not overwhelm our resources. And that's always, I think, a big question for us. So at least in Texas, at least in Texas, we found that um, we don't have as many deaths in proportion to the number of cases. Now you can argue, are we testing more or testing less than other places? But we don't have as, you know, as, as high a fatality rate with those uh, when, you, when you do the numbers. And so, you know, and we haven't overwhelmed our resources like places like New York. So every place is going to be, you know, unique with that. But, yeah, I mean, it, 
crosses my mind with every patient that I, I come in contact with. You know, am I going to get the virus? Am I going to carry the virus home to my family? I mean, that's a risk that, you know, I have to take as a healthcare provider. I mean, that's part of, of you know, you know, the Hippocratic Oath or the hypocritic oath that I made, you know, to serve people, <laughs> you know, Richard. Well, I'll tell you, you know, you're, you're the title of your book is very intriguing. It certainly provokes uh, interest, as I mentioned before, for those people old enough to know the song, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Uh, a spoonful of courage for the sick and suffering, transforming your greatest challenges into your biggest blessings. My guest today is Charles W. Page, Dr. Charles W. Page. You and I do have something a little in common, only by name. I go by uh, Reverend Dr. D. Uh, I was given the Dr. D years ago by someone, and it just kind of stuck. So now I've got it on my business cards. It's kind of cute. I consider myself the audio physician because I do archival work. Uh, but uh, you're doing sort of uh, uh, a form of archival work. You're trying to keep people alive so that they move on into uh, uh, days, weeks, months, and years ahead. Uh, as I said before, I'm almost 60 and I have to outlive my great grandmother who lived to be over a hundred. And I remember <laughs> as, she was, as she was in her late nineties and we would go to family reunions, I'd say that with the final statement saying, and she's making it really hard and it wasn't because I wanted her to die. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but I just felt like what a great role model she was to, uh, uh, to longevity. And I'm hoping that I can have the same cause there's still a lot I'd like to do, but you know, if today was my day and I was called. I'd go, uh, you know, as hard as that might be for the rest of the folks left behind. Um, I don't want to, I certainly don't, but, uh, you know, uh, we know when our arrival, uh, our tickets punched for our arrival. We just don't know what the departure date is. <laughs> so, you know, we need to be, we need to be prepared. I'm curious, uh, you, you take care of all these people and you deal with uh, caregivers all the time. You yourself are a caregiver just by virtue of being a doctor. Uh, caring for the sick and uh, infirm and so on and so forth. Not something I trained for when my wife went through her cancer uh, series of cancer yes. issues, the, the the surgery and the chemotherapy. And um, more and more people today, because they're staying home, because they, they know people <clears throat> or they're caring for people who are recovering, say, from the COVID virus. Some people, for example, we've seen a lot of the Zoom and Skype uh, videos of uh, folks staying at home. They're staying in their basement while the family lives upstairs while they're recovering and so yep. forth. Yep. Um, caregiving. That's really, that's really what you're talking about in one sense, both caregiving for others, but in the case of your, your book about uh, um, the sick and the suffering, uh, there are instances where we don't get better and we move on. But then there are situations where we can look back and say, wow, what a journey that was. And then you start <laughs> to ponder the lessons that you may have learned through that particular journey. Have you yourself been through? I know this is a compilation of stories of other folks, but have you yourself been through uh, some of these uh, uh, situations uh, of being sick and suffering and, and, uh, not feeling real great and so forth, uh, that you've come out the other side and it's like, you have a greater appreciation now for the patients when they're moaning and groaning and carrying on because they're just, they just don't know what else to do. Richard, you asked me about 15 questions there. You know, I'm one of those, 
I'm one of those do as I say, not as I do doctors. One of those doctors say, you know, just bend over. This ain't going to hurt me a bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say this. I have never been hospitalized. I do have some sleep. I do have some medical problems. In fact, I have sleep apnea. And I wrote a book about that, about, you know, it's funny. I can you know, do as I say, not as I do. I wrote a book about sleep, sleep problems and stuff, kind of from a spiritual component. But, but, but about spoonfuls of courage, you know, this is, uh, it's not called a spoonful of sugar because suffering is real. And, uh, you know, these are faith-based stories. They kind of show the difference that, you know, uh, faith and hope and courage make in a person's life. Now, what's interesting is what you said. You know, um, I'm a caretaker for the most part. I'm not a caregiver. You know, a caregiver is different. And, you know, if you're taking care of a person, a spouse who's had cancer or taking care of a parent who has Alzheimer's or taking care of someone who has coronavirus, that's a caregiver. And the caregiver's are the forgotten sufferers. You know, when somebody's sick, they've got cancer, everybody tends to focus their attention on the person who has cancer, not on the caregiver. And the caregiver suffers just as much. It's a different kind of challenge uh, than the one who's actually sick. So I'm writing a new book. I've got the manuscript done for a spoonful of courage for caregivers because I believe that they're the ones that are so often that are forgotten. You know, you think about it. I mean, someone gets sick, the caregiver is the one that has to Except all these new responsibilities, you know, they, they're the ones that never get a break. They're the ones that have to make decisions uh, about, you know, we talk about end of life issues, all of these issues that caregivers have to make. And, and, and I believe it's even even more stressful often. I mean, the toll is often greater on the caregivers than it is the actual person who's suffering from the disease. You know, I remember in November of 2001. I reached uh, a point where it's like, oh my God, I need a break. I, I've never done this before. It's not what I signed on for, but I love this woman and I want to see it. <laughs> right. uh, as a matter of fact, it was, it was, uh, it was um, the impetus for a book that uh, I'm, I'm work. I, I've finished, but uh, uh, it's uh, called choices, five steps for life. And it came about due to her, cancer and that I wanted her to focus on something other than that. So I came wow. up with these five steps and I plastered it all over the house and in drawers and in cabinets and in cupboards and on and on and on and on. And, um, I re and the book actually starts out with a question that I asked her. Uh, I think it was just before she went into surgery. I said, do you want to live or do you want to die? I may wow. not, I may not like your choice, but I will support you in it and of course she had already decided to live uh i found that out later and um that to me was profound but a point where i i just needed a break and i remember going in uh to the bedroom and i said look i i've been invited by a buddy of mine to spend the weekend in san diego we were living in phoenix at the time and the conversation basically went uh well if I let you go, I will resent you the rest of your life. And if, uh, and if I don't let you go, you will resent me the rest of your life. Well, I did go, but I returned early. We did have family and friends in the neighborhood who looked in on her on a regular basis, even when I was at work. So she wasn't going to be alone in that respect. She did have a loving cat who spent the time with her almost all the time that she was sleeping or sitting in the overstuffed chair in the living room or what have you. 
and I remember getting counsel from someone from the East Valley Cancer uh, Society there, there in Phoenix. Um, and I pr- presented this whole thing to her. She says, no, you need to take a break. If that's what you feel you need to do, it's okay if you do that. And I was actually kind of shocked. I was afraid she was going to say, no, you need to stay. You, you can't go anywhere. You've got to take. And uh, so it was, it was sort of a relief that I was getting it from a, an unbiased, from my perspective, uh, observer. Um, and, but we've, she, I, she doesn't resent me and I, nor I, her for any of the, what we went through, because those are the challenges, as you say, in the subtitle, the transform one's uh, greatest challenges into the greatest blessings. Here we are in Santa Barbara living here for 14 years. Uh, we've moved, uh, moved through this incredibly. I'm curious, you say that this is faith-based. I'm curious about, uh, uh, your, uh, how your faith has not just been challenged, but how it's been changed or transformed uh, through the experiences, not just of those in, uh, with the COVID virus, but also uh, just through the day-to-day um, process you go through of, of dealing with patients and, and their concerns. Well, Rich, I think one of the things I've learned, you know, I'm a, I'm a surgeon, I'm a control freak, you know, and I've, and I've realized at least from, an earthly standpoint, the control is just an illusion. You know, I mean, I like to control things. I want to control surgery. I want to concern, every, control every different circumstance. And one of the things that, <clears throat> that that I've learned through this process and that I think has helped me grow in my faith as a Christian is I've realized that, you know, I'm really not in control. The good news is, is that God's in control. And I think one of the things uh, that kind of inspired me to write this book was the fact that, I had all these situations that, I, you know, in my mind, I really didn't know how to how to deal with emotionally, you know. And so I began to write and kind of helped me begin to kind of uh, help me to understand and begin to, you know, kind of uh, deal with a lot of these issues that so often as doctors we repress, you know, we try to repress because we've got to go on to the next patient and make the next decision. You know, but these things that you see that you just don't really you don't have an answer for. And so I think that's one of the things that it has kind of inspired me to write, probably like you with your book and your five points that I wanted to ask you about your five points before we leave. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that's been a, a process for me. I don't have all the answers. I think so often, you know, we focus on our feelings, you know, because either whether you're a caregiver or you're the person who's sick, you've got COVID, you know, we focus on the feelings and we feel alone, we feel out of control, we feel inadequate to face the challenges that we have, you know, all these feelings surface. And so one of the things I wanted to do was go back to the facts and, and, and kind of draw people back to the facts, just like with coronavirus. Now, you know, I talk to people and even talking about some of my family members. I mean, they're they're just fearful about this. And I don't think we need to to fear this. We need to go back to the facts. I mean, the scientific facts are that 95% of people who get the virus are going to be okay. You know, it's just yes. that what we, it's just that what we hear on the media, you know, we hear, you know, they talk to the ICU doctors and the emergency room doctors who, you know, that's in their world. That's all they're seeing. We don't get the other side. We talk to the primary care doctor who may see five, 10 patients a day with COVID virus and send them home. So, we got to go back and we got to look at the facts and kind of have a little bit of balance about with this. So, you know, you know, I always say, you know, I've learned facts, 
faith and our feelings follow. And so, so much of things now are being driven by our feelings. Uh, not that our feelings aren't important, but we got to kind of get a better balance of that. And that's what I hope these stories do for folks. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. One of the, the, <clears throat> the, the troubling parts, as I've shared with my boss, we've had conversations about this. And of course, he is a little bit on the other side wanting to reopen the everything, obviously, because, you know, we keep the radio station going and keep everybody paid <laughs> and, and what have you. I get that. And I want that, too. But um, uh, one of the things I said, one of the biggest problems that we face from both sides of the argument, if you will, uh, or the discussion, let's let's say discussion. Uh, is whose facts are we going to listen to? Uh, and, and that's the troubling part. Uh, what was it? I heard um, a gentleman, one of my guests on my program, sent me an email not long ago, and he said there's a worse virus out there than coronavirus. I thought, you got to be kidding. What was that? <laughs> the, worst, the, the, the worst virus than coronavirus? Worse than Ebola, I'm sure. What is it? <laughs> well, it is ignorance fear and lack of faith and it ties directly into what you just said facts faith and feelings and facts ignorance of what is what the reality is but the question is who do we listen is dr fauci uh, uh our our oracle uh or is governor newsom here in california our oracle or your governor in texas i mean i find it fascinating how many people have become microbiologists overnight uh, to tell us <laughs> what is and isn't the truth, you know, whether it's in the news media or fa- friends and family that you that you meet. I, you know, and I have two different hospitals and both of them have very different approaches to how we manage patients and how we manage the coronavirus. And so, you know, I think we need to keep a also keep a balance with this is about people. You know, what I'm saying that everybody. Yes. Is, yes. When our feelings are taking the, you know taken its toll on everything and so we need to take a step back and just no one really has an answer and that's the point you we're getting so many different views and i'll tell you one thing that i'm doing now i am trying to limit the amount of media that i watch uh because i just with the more media that i listen to the more depressed i get about this <laughs> <laughs> i know that sounds bad i know that we're you know i'm giving the no. radio interview right now dude. but but we have to we have to balance that yeah, it does not sound bad. And I, I applaud you. You are a very intelligent doctor and a human being, knowing that uh, in order to stay mentally well, you need to stop injecting yourself with that virus, as it were. Uh, and it's really unfortunate. It really is. Uh, it used to be that we trusted what we heard, uh, what we read, what we saw uh, from the from the journalists. And it's unfortunate. But you, you have firsthand knowledge of what's going on. You know better than what you're getting from the, from the, as they call it, the boob tube. Um, as you have uh, uh, worked through all of this, I'm curious as to how your perspective, your perception, your belief uh, in, in what you are doing what you've been called to do as a physician, I would think that that's probably the way that you view that, how that impacts not just the patients, but certainly that's a very important element, but even the family members and relatives of the patients 
that that uh, you interact with. So it's interesting. I mean, there's a whole spectrum. I mean, because everybody, just like we talk about the media, everybody in the media has a different perspective and different governors have different perspectives. Everybody has different perspectives. of, And so, you know, every family is, is different. I mean, I have some people come into the office that are wearing gloves. You know, we know that gloves is really not a very good idea unless you're going to change your glove with every every interaction that you have. I mean, it's great. And for example, when you're dealing with a coronavirus patient, you take off your gloves and put on a new set of gloves. But wearing gloves, you're just transmitting the virus around and keeping the virus on your hands. So I have people that wear gloves. I have people that wear masks. And then the other extreme, I have people that don't wear masks. You know, and now, and now added to that tension is the fact that when people go to the hospital, the family cannot come in. I mean, the family, the family is not allowed in the hospital. It's almost like a ghost town now. You walk through the, the halls of a hospital. And so a lot of my conversations are either made over the phone or they're made um, you know, behind a mask or, you know, they're in a car in the parking lot. You know, probably probably after all this, we're going to be doing surgeries in the parking lot, you know. <laughs> but, but it's just crazy, all of these emotions and stuff. And so, yeah. you know, it's really about relationship. You know, I mean, it really, it really goes down to relationship. And it really, I think it, it involves, you know, educating people. You know, if someone comes in without a mask, you know, now there are laws in Texas where, you know, I, they have to wear a mask and I have to wear a mask. So we have to obey the law. But also there's some, you know, I think there's some uh, some laxity there that we can have with people. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to beat people up on either side of this. I'm just trying to just trying to walk through this and get people through this uh, and get, get them on the other side and, and keep people healthy if that's possible. And I think that's what we all got to keep in mind, regardless of our ideological mindset or whether we're to the right or to the left or whether we think the virus is going to kill everybody or we think it's all a hope and a conspiracy, you know, hype and a conspiracy. We've got to walk through this and we've got to be able to work with people. And I think that's what we need to keep in mind. I couldn't agree. Does that with make you. sense? It makes absolutely sense. I, I have to say, I, I chuckle a little bit because I'm thinking I'm waiting for here someone. I'm waiting for someone to utter the phrase in reference to the coronavirus, in reference to what we should do. I'm waiting for someone of faith to say, "Well, what would Jesus do?" Well, I know what he'd do. <laughs> he'd heal everybody. Well, I don't know if he'd heal everybody, but uh, you know. <laughs> um, but it really comes down to, I think, an attitude of kindness. I know that when this thing first started back in early March, and then my wife, of course, has been furloughed since March 18th from her medical job, uh, and, and she works in the cardiology department at Sansom Clinic here in Santa Barbara. And um, I have to tell you, uh, uh, Doc, I have been optimistic from day one. Long before March, I mean, back in yep. December and January, I was just optimistic. And here's the reason why. What they decided to do, as I said earlier, was finally something different than they've done in the past when we've had these flus that even though we had vaccines that, uh, uh, you know, they shut things down. So they're, we're doing something different. But my belief in change regardless of what kind of change it is, always opens up new doors of opportunity for everybody. Absolutely. And, and, and I, I, you know, I just can't, that, that is inescapable to me 
uh, as far as that's concerned. Um, and I know that we, you, you, know, you look around you, I look around me, I see on the news, on television programs constantly where uh, setting aside all of the quibbling over what is and what isn't fact, look at how many people have stepped up to help, whether they're making masks or face shields or uh, helping out the elderly who are the most vulnerable of the population to deliver food. Uh, one of the best, greatest stories I saw was of an elderly woman who lived no- next door to this other woman uh, who was a younger woman who had this dog and uh, the elderly woman wanted uh, the, the woman, could you maybe go to the store for me? Cause I'm just afraid to go out and so forth and so on. She says, well, sure. <clears throat> we'll just, you know, uh, write me a list and so forth. Well, the dog went over and grabbed the list and brought it back to the woman. She went shopping. <laughs> and when they got back, the dog carried the bag over to the woman I just, I'm thinking, wow. And this dog, it was as if the dog knew exactly what to do. And he did. I'm sure he did. Those are the kinds of stories that of transformation of our society, of the kindness that is out there, has always been there, uh, that is to me just so remarkable. Yeah. So, and ditto to that. So first of all, to the Christian who asked that question, I would say, First of all, I'm not Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm, I'm imperfect. I wish I could heal people. Um, but I do think also, you know, the scriptures remind us that we need to consider other people's well-being above our own. You know what I'm saying? And that's one of the things, especially with the social distancing, especially with those folks who say, this is not real. This is a hype. And, you know, it is real. We know it's about five times as contagious. And we're seeing people, a whole lot more people die than we see ever see with the uh you know, uh, with the flu. And so we need to just kind of keep that in mind that it's not about us per se. It's really about other folks. And, you know, I mean, probably 95% of the people are going to be fine with this and we're going to, we're going to get through this and there's going to be a lot of things we're going to learn. And I think, you know, I think the next time, hopefully we don't have another virus for another, uh, however long, you know, like uh, the, you know, I guess the last big virus was the Spanish flu back you know, in uh, you know, in the early early uh, 20th century, and hopefully we won't have another virus. But if we do, maybe we'll know how to do it better. Maybe we'll yeah. have thought through some of these things, and we'll be able to deal with it better from a standpoint of talking about you know when to shut down, and, and maybe you know getting information from the country where this is involved in before it ever gets over here, and, and, and having a plan of action way before we did. I mean, I think um, uh, you know the challenge here is that, you know, how do you stop a virus? You know, I don't think we can stop a virus. No. All we can do, really, I think, is uh, acknowledge the fact that it's there and then take precautions so that we don't get it and spread it. Uh, But in terms of people getting it, it's one of those things where I think it's all, all that's left is treatment from what I understand of viruses. I don't know about bacterial things, but viruses, um, antibiotics just don't seem to, to, to cut it, whether they ever did or whether they don't anymore, because we've been consuming so many products that already have them in them that our immune systems have been so compromised that that that's one of the problems. Um, by the way, that's one of the aspects too, that I'd like to talk a little bit about in terms of, um, 
in terms of uh, our, our, our national health. It has been said that 99% of those who died of the coronavirus died not so much of the virus, but of, of pre-existing conditions. And many of these pre-existing conditions came about due to the lifestyle these individuals were living. Whether they were smokers, drinkers, they were eating lots of fatty foods or this or that or the other. And uh, by the way, I also heard something along the lines that fat actually helps the virus, if you will. Uh, but the, the, the fact that we as a nation in particular have, have very poor health overall. I mean, the level of obesity in this country is just unbelievable, isn't it? And that's something somebody was talking about just the other day, that yep. if these people did not have these pre-existing conditions, which they didn't have to have, if they Correct. had taken care of their health, they might be they might be alive today. Your thoughts on that theory, not just as far as the coronavirus, but about the the future of our civilization. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there a simple question I can answer? <laughs> let, me, let me say this, Rich. It's all about lifestyle, okay? And, you know, the old saying, when you point a finger at someone, you've got three pointing back. Do as I say, mm -hmm. not as I do. Um, you know, I'm in middle age and I enjoy food uh, and I'm, a little bit overweight. I'm not morbidly obese, but I'm, you know, I'm getting there and trying to change my lifestyle, my behavior, and it's a real challenge. Um, you know, we live, in, you know, and it's about our lifestyle. We live in a in a nanosecond culture. You know, families. I mean, think about it. We, you know, we work behind a computer. Many of us. We have kids. We go maybe go to the baseball game. You know, after after work. You know, and then we 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 eat you know, fast foods and things that really aren't good for us. You know, um, we eat a lot of processed foods. I mean, morbid obesity is an epidemic. I mean, in the United States, I mean, I do some morbid obesity surgeries and I'll tell you about 90% of this is, is, is based upon our lifestyle. So we, we have to get a hold of that. You know, it's, it's funny. You go to other places in the world, you go to Africa, they don't have problems with morbid obesity. You know, and interestingly, they've not, they're not having as many cases as we are, probably because they don't have the resources to test. But, you know, but, but, but interesting, you know, it, it, it is a lifestyle thing. And, and I really believe maybe this may be a kind of a wake up call for our country because, you know, so many of us have had to really slow down. I mean, so much of our lifestyle is just the fact that we're so busy. We don't eat right. We don't exercise. And so hopefully this is, you know, going to be an opportunity for people to take a step back and go, you know, maybe maybe it's okay to cook at home. You maybe need to do more cooking at home and have more meals, you know, with the family at home. All of those things, I think, would make a difference uh, as far as our lifestyles, our relationships with a lot of things. So hopefully there's going to be some good come out of this. Well, I do believe that uh, you're right about that. And just to let our listeners know and let you know, our listeners probably already know this, <clears throat> I myself have been promoting uh, a, a campaign called 2020 the year of perfect vision now that's referring to inner vision and i'm encouraging people to go within to listen to their intuition that still small voice how, however you want to uh, identify uh so that you can not only get guidance but also so you can find that place of peace and calm 
because that's what we need now more than than ever before because uh, we've seen too many news stories as you you said you try not to watch but i know you've seen some of these news stories of people who've just gone off the rails over what uh, a roll of toilet paper uh, uh, a yep. stack of hamburger patties or something i mean it's this is ridiculous and I, I i and again i'm going to say this as apolitically or non-politically <laughs> as i can when we don't have the leadership in this country that is the example, it makes it very hard because we, we tend to want to learn from example, usually. And we have a president who, from my estimation, looks pretty darn, looks, looks a little bit on the obese side. He looks a little on the overweight side, unless he's padding his suit or something. Um, he just, because I've seen pictures of him, when he was younger and he was much thinner and he's in his seventies now and does not look healthy as far as his weight's concerned. And that that's a concern to a lot of people. We don't want to deal with that scenario right now. We got enough going on as it is, <laughs> you know, I wish that the man would take better care of himself on a health uh, perspective, not just for his benefit, but for the benefit of the public who, who do see him apolitically as an example he's our leader and so and so forth uh what are your thoughts about the aspect of leadership president or otherwise just at, at any level in terms of being that example to the rest of us of how and again that's not to say that these people are perfect don't get me wrong but they're doing their best they can to show us a better way well I resemble that statement. I'm going to, I'm going to deal with this personally. Okay. Cause as a okay. physician, you know, we physicians are the best at telling people what to do, uh, but not doing it ourselves. Like I said, do as I say, not as I do. And, and I, and I, and I struggle with weight and I, I struggle with exercise. I live a lifestyle. I mean, that's just crazy. I'm up sometimes in the middle of the night and that I don't feel like getting up and exercising or I don't get enough sleep. And so I'm tired. And so I don't eat, eat right. All of those unhealthy things and so um you know i think those changes come one step at a time you know i think we have to make small decisions you know the old saying you know you reap you reap a thought you sow an act you know you sow an act you reap a habit you know that ultimately that becomes a lifestyle you know, we need to make small decisions um, every day and then, you know, take time to to kind of do some inventory and think about our lives. And that's what I would encourage our our listeners today is just to take some inventory and think about your lifestyle, maybe some ways, some steps that you could take. that could help you to live a little bit healthier, maybe something in your diet or something that you could, um, you know, do without um, maybe getting better sleep, you know maybe going and seeing your doctor more often. I think one of the problems in general with our healthcare system is we tend, uh, you know, to deal with, uh, instead of looking at the underlying problems, we tend to treat the symptoms instead of the, you know, instead of what's causing the symptoms. You know, it's like we're putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. So for myself, I would say, you know, one of the things that I'm really working on in this time, since I, you know, I'm not as busy with surgery, is trying to work on exercise trying to work on diminishing the t- 
10 gallons of coffee that I drink every day. Forget the president. It's easy to point fingers at the president. I have to point, I got three fingers back at myself, pointing back at myself. I've got a lot of stuff that I need to fix. And so, you know, for my family and for my, you know, for my longevity, I'd like to be like your grandma, you know, and live to be 100 and however old she was, you know. I had a grandma that lived to be 102, you know, and every day she was up doing something, you know. And yeah. so I, I think that's a key is activity. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just find it very interesting that we have all of the means at our disposal uh, to do just that. Uh, but for some reason, we just we haven't done it. And, and that's just the short and the long, long and the short of it is we just haven't done it. That's all. Uh, but there's still time to do. There's still time to do what needs to be done. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm optimistic, uh, as always, <clears throat> to to make it happen. Uh, and I think that uh, I think that it will. Um so yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's a challenge I know for a lot of folks uh, to to live better lives and lifestyles. But then again, they'll say, "Well, yeah, but there's nothing, you know." But the you know, but the you know the the the, the stuff that's in the grocery stores, you know, is just not uh, you know, it's it's too expensive to eat healthy. And of course, I I would respond to that saying, "Yeah." But it's going to be awfully expensive not to, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the real truth. And, and I, I myself finally, my, and I have to give my credit, my, my wife, uh, the credit for this, <clears throat> that we do our best to eat as healthfully as we possibly can, even though once a month or once a week during this period that we're in, that she's home, um, I'll say, okay, what do you want for dinner tonight? I'll go and I'll order it and I'll pick it up. And we do try to order something. Well, yeah, we do order pizza from from time to time and, and so forth and so on. But the rest of the time she'll make something at home. I'll go get the yeah. ingredients uh, and uh, yeah. organic. She always insists on organic. And so I'll buy organic and, uh, and we're doing everything. And we drink uh, distilled water rather than regular water or tap water. Uh, I've been told, you know, you can get your minerals through everything else you don't necessarily need it in your water but the other reason of course is that one of our cats had uh, the equivalent of kidney stones and they told us that <laughs> hey that's just fine so all our cats and our dogs drink distilled water to minimize the minerals in their urinary tracts and so forth but i mean it's just like it sometimes it doesn't take much i mean i eliminated uh i eliminated um uh dairy in a big way from my diet. I mean, I used to, I was, a, I was working at a radio station, uh, years ago, uh, where I would, <laughs> I would, uh, uh, buy a half gallon or a quart of milk and I would drink that the, that day. Yeah. Uh, well, I, well, I drink about that much cream in my coffee every day. I <laughs> Small steps, you know, yeah. Uh, even even intermittent fasting is shown to help. You know, I mean, Absolutely. it's interesting. Yeah. Um, all those things. You know, they say if you eat right, eighty percent of the time, you know, you can twenty twenty percent of the time you can eat that that piece of pizza that you really crave. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Hey, uh, this this has been fantastic. Uh, unfortunately, we have to bring this to a close. I know you're there in Texas. Uh, I don't know how much you travel, probably not much because of all your patients, but 
<clears throat> if you ever find yourself out in here, Santa Barbara, you know, uh, we'll maybe we'll take a a brisk walk on the beach. I, I don't run anymore. Man, that um, sounds great. You know, and we'll maybe have a chat and record it and have another interview. I've offered that to many of my guests saying, come out to Santa Barbara and we'll do an interview out on the beach and and uh, have a nice sound of the ocean going by and what are coming in and out. Um, and also, I have, five, I have five children. OK, so the last time we went to California, we did a we did a kind of a tour. We got in a bus and drove around. So if I come by Santa Barbara, you're going to have to like feed all my five kids. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's we can make organic it now, okay? It's going to be organic. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. <laughs> um, I also want to ask you three final questions before we, before we wrap up the program, but I want to let our listeners know, uh, first of all, or just remember to this is the year 2020, the year of perfect vision. Please, please, you've got the time right now. Spend the time, whether it's in prayer, meditation, uh, sitting out in nature if you can. We are lucky up here on the hill here in Santa Barbara. We get to do that. Uh Get the answers that you need from within. You don't need someone outside yourself telling you what you should do. You, you've got all the answers you could possibly ever want. And find that peace and calm. Keep your blood. I, I wish I didn't have to take meds for blood pressure, but I'm doing it. A doctor says it'll help. And uh, so I'm doing that, plus working on my my mental game. To st- so please take the time. Also, if you can support us financially, please, uh, if you can, PayPal, Patreon accounts are open to you. And I thank you so much for uh, for doing what you can. We'll take energetic support as well. Three final questions that I have for you today and a reminder to our listeners that uh, <clears throat> we have been talking today, of course, with Dr. Charles Charles Page. Uh, he is, of course, the author of the book entitled A Spoonful of Courage. And we encourage you to copy A Spoonful of Courage for the Sick and for the Sick and Suffering, Transforming Your Greatest Challenges into Your be- Biggest Blessings. And uh, it is, of course, at charleswpage.com. And we will be linked to your website, uh, Doctor, so that people can find out more about you, find out uh, about your book, get a copy of your book, and maybe connect with you to if they have any further questions. Uh, I do. I have three. As I like to ask my guests at the end of every program, you may have answered these questions uh, during the interview, but I like to ask them directly. And the first is, who is Charles W. Page? Well, I am a person who is still in progress. I am a, uh, I'm a surgeon. I'm a husband. I'm a father of five. Uh, I'm a Christian. I'm a person who's still trying to, to figure it all out. Um, and so that's, that's what I would say. I'm not perfect, uh, but I'm learning. And I'm taking small steps. And uh, trying to uh, trying to get a little bit a little bit better every day. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? Well, I want to encourage people. I mean, that's really you know, in my in my work as a surgeon, in my in my writing, I believe that's one thing that most people need. You know, we all need. Um, encouragement. We all need affirmation. We all need that that pat on the back and just that exhortation just to keep going and to take the next step. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Well, I believe, you know, I believe my life's purpose, first of all, is to, you know, 
to serve God and to know God and to be a good dad and to you know to to serve my family and to love my wife and to serve my patients and my community well. Uh, but I think another thing that I'm kind of learning as I'm as I'm getting older that um, I I feel like I've been given a gift of encouragement. You know, of encouraging people. You know, regardless of where they're at spiritually or where they're at in their life physically, maybe with sickness or whatever. It's just I'm, I'm learning that, you know, I'm, I'm here to encourage people. Well, I thank you for taking the time to encourage us here on the program as we continue through uh, what for some is a difficult time uh, for others like you and I are is a is a wonderful opportunity uh, for uh, growth and change and to help people to share that kindness, uh, uh, God's love, if you will. And uh, we thank you so much for sharing with us a spoonful of courage for the sick and suffering, transforming your greatest challenges into your biggest blessings. And uh, Dr. Charles Page, thank you again for being with us here on Tell Me Your Story. It was fun, Richard. Charles W. Page.com is the website. Charles W. Page will be linked. We thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. Until our next broadcast podcast, love to lull.